Welcome to Islam in Life. My name is Maimuna Hussain, and thank you for welcoming us into your home to have these meaningful conversations. As we begin, let us begin with the recitation of the Quran. In Uh, we want to remind you as we begin tonight that uh, this uh, this episode of Islam and Life can also be found on podcast, so you can definitely take a listen after as well, inshallah, and that information is just at across the bottom of the screen there. Um, I also want to remind you that this is a live show, so you can definitely engage with our guest. So if at any point you do have questions for our guest, you can type that in at the bottom of the chat box that you're watching on. Or if you want to join us on Zoom, you can find us at the Zoom room uh, meeting link, which is not meeting uh, room number, which is 905-822-2626. So with that, let's begin inshallah. I'm with my co-host, Brother Khalid Al-Qazaz. Wa alaikum wa rahmatullah. Wa alaikum salam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. So let's get into the critical question, uh, Brother Khalid. Our critical question is usually uh, to engage with our audience on relevant topics that are happening, what your thoughts are in terms of, uh, you know, um, things that are happening within the community. And so, uh, Brother Khalid, if you can tell us what we want to kind of think about in the next uh, little while. So today, inshallah, we're going to have a, a deep discussion with an expert on uh, uh, the concept of Ummah. And uh, the question that we have for our audience today uh, as they watch this uh, segment and as they reflect is, how do you uh, practically demonstrate your belonging to this Muslim Ummah? So uh, we have uh, different perceptions or understanding, and inshallah, we'll clarify today around what is the Ummah. And, uh, and we relate and link to it in different ways. Uh, so uh, apart from this understanding or conceptual or intellectual understanding of the concept of Ummah, how does it reflect in our lives? And how do you demonstrate that connection and that uh, belonging that we are blessed uh, to be? And as Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uh, describes in the verses that we have uh, listened to a few minutes ago. So I think it's an important question that is worth reflecting uh, day in and day out, inshallah. So send us your thoughts. You can uh, do so on our social media platforms. You can also email, uh, email us your thoughts at productions at macnet.ca. Uh, just also an announcement that as we go into Ramadan, inshallah, um, the Muslim Association of Canada will be offering programs uh, online uh, as well as within our local chapters. And we'll uh, also uh, share some of those details towards the end of the show as well. And uh, the Muslim Association of Canada has announced that uh, Thursday, March 23rd, will be the first day of uh, Ramadan 1444 Hij Hijri, inshallah. And that is according to the FIC Council of North America. Um, which utilizes the criteria of the European Council of Fatwa and uh, Research. Uh, so stay tuned on programming that will be coming up, inshallah, um, throughout the month of uh, Ramadan. So uh, let's move towards our conversation uh, for this evening, uh, this uh, tonight's show. Um, so we want to talk about the concept of Ummah. And we have a very special guest with us uh, tonight uh, that will be uh, delving into this concept of Ummah. What does it mean to be part of an Ummah? Uh, how can we unite as a global community? Those are some of the things that we will be discussing, inshallah. And so before uh, we get into that, let's take a look at what our research team has put together for us. If one were to take a comprehensive look at the word Ummah in the Qur'an, we will find that the Qur'an uses the word in four different instances. In one instance, the word Ummah is used to mean a period of time, such as in Surah Hud, Ayah number 8, which translates as, And if we delay the torment for them till a determined term. 
It is also used to mean a group of people, whether small in numbers or as large as humanity, as in Ayah 47 of Surah Yunus, which translates as, and for every ummah, community or nation, there is a messenger. The Qur'an also uses the word ummah to refer to a man who is taken as a leader, as in Ayah 120 of Surah An-Nahl, which translates as, Verily, Ibrahim was an ummah, a leader having all the good, righteous qualities. Finally, the word ummah is also depicted as a way or religion, as in Ayah 92 of Surah Al-Anbiya, which translates to, Truly, this, your ummah, is one religion. Pertinent to our discussion tonight with Dr. Ovamir Anjum, we will focus on Ummah as a term defined and honored in the Qur'an to refer to the community of the followers of the final Prophet Muhammad We describe the characteristics of an Ummah as a bond between people based on a shared belief and shared accountability for Iqamat al-Din, meaning the upholding of the faith. It is important to note that the concept of Ummah is not limited to a geographical nation or political entity, neither is it limited to a period of time as in past civilizations that came to fruition and disappeared like the Roman Empire or ancient Egyptians. These were locked to a period of time and left behind for us certain artifacts, but this Ummah is reborn with each successive generation, as such this Ummah has not stopped to exist. As narrated by the great Sahabi Abu Hurairah, may Allah be pleased with him, the Messenger of Allah, peace be upon him, said, At the beginning of every century, Allah will send to this Ummah someone who will renew its religious understanding. Being believers and part of the Ummah of our beloved Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, we need to monitor our beliefs, values, and attitudes such that they align with and not hinder the shared bond and accountability we have with our brothers and sisters. Tonight, we host Dr. Ovamir Anjum to lean in on his extensive work and research on the Ummah by shedding light on the concepts of Ummatics and the many layers this brings to the discussion. Ovamir Anjum, he is the Imam Khattab Endowed Chair of the Islamic Studies at the Department of Philosophy and Religious Studies at the University of Toledo, and he is also the founder and chief researcher, research officer at Ummatics Institute. His work uh, focuses on uh, the nexus of theology, ethics, politics, and law in Islam, uh, also looking at the comparative uh, pieces with uh, Western thought. He's also translated um, the work uh, by Ibn al-Qayyim, Ranks of Divine Seekers, uh, which is one of the greatest Islamic spiritual classics. Um, and so, inshallah, we hope to get into this conversation. Welcome. Assalamu alaikum rahmatullah, Dr. Ovamir. Wa alaikum assalam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Thank you very much for having me. Um, so as we start this conversation and knowing that we're, you know, getting into uh, the spirit of Ramadan, uh, somehow Ramadan naturally lends itself to this feeling of connectedness and ummah. And I wonder if you can kind of uh, guide us through that. You know, why is that the case and how do we connect and feel this and then spiritually move through Ramadan towards some of that act activating that uh, uh, sense of ummah? Yes, Bismillah We are one uh, week almost exactly from the blessed month of Ramadan. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to allow us as an ummah to enter the month of Ramadan Amen. and to renew the bonds of solidarity between us and to particularly those um, around the world, those members of our ummah, who are suffering, who are incarcerated, uh, who live in insecurity of basic needs of life. Um, may Allah protect them, may Allah provide for them, and may Allah allow us to be part of their solution, part of um, the community uh, that we are supposed to be. The month of Ramadan, it's a month um, of Iman, it's a month of the Qur'an. And so it's natural that we are 
we draw closer to each other because we cannot draw closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala without drawing closer to each other. And whenever we draw closer to each other, we draw closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala because what draws us closer to each other as believers is La ilaha illallah Muhammad Rasulullah. And when Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam mentioned the sweetness of faith, if you want to taste faith in this life, apart from the love for Allah and his messenger, which must be above everything else, he وسلم, mentioned a criterion which is that you love someone for no other reason but because they are believers, because they say, La ilaha illallah Muhammad Rasulullah. Which does not mean that you do not love other people, you do not have compassion for other people. But there is a special love, um, and that is only for those and for all of those who say, La ilaha illallah Muhammad Rasulullah. And that's why Ramadan naturally is the time when we feel the presence of the ummah and as we uh, enter into the month of Ramadan together we have to decide how to do so we all do so together as a community we rely on each other's reports we rely on each other's methods so this is very much a social and political process in which we all decide to start fasting together even when we disagree there is a managed mechanism of that disagreement uh, we tolerate each other's dis disagreement. That's part of the blessing uh, and mercy for this ummah. Um, we fast together. We understand each other. We know what it is to stay hungry all day. We care for each other. We invite each other to our homes to break the fast together. So Ramadan is just as it is the month of the Quran, it is also the month of the community. And we all know this to some degree to many people, especially those who are children uh, or those who are not very literate, they may in fact feel the month of Ramadan only through the community. That may be the only dimension. They may not know the Quran very well. They may not even be able to fast, but this closeness to the community uh, when we all come together and read the Quran at night and fast together and then we anticipate Eid together and so on. So those are the parts of uh, our uh, emotive or effect effective part of our faith that we can all feel and we should go out of our way to make those members of our Ummah that are typically left out, that are typically forgotten, that do not have family for instance, and we should look out for them in our mosques, in our communities, uh, in our circles. Uh, always look at people who are not going to be invited and invite them. That's what it means very locally, immediately to be part of the Ummah. Jazakumullah khairan, Dr. Ayman. It's a, it's a very good beginning and uh, subhanAllah, a very good uh, introduction to uh, to get to feel actually what does it mean to belong to one Ummah through uh, the, the Muslim Ummah entering this uh, blessed month of Ramadan. Inshallah. Uh, however, one of the objectives of today's show is to come to a to an understanding, uh, shared understanding of that uh, concept that has that different people might have different uh, uh, interpretations to and understand it and relate to it in different ways. So we see people uh, def understand the ummah. What comes to mind is uh, the Islamic State, for example, in the historical in the historical times, uh, a state under the Khilafah, a geopolitical uh, entity, uh, and uh, by the by the uh, fall of the Khilafah in the early 1900s. Does this mean that the Ummah uh, uh, disappeared? And on the uh, opposite side, uh, a definition of the Ummah that relates to uh, more or less uh, brotherhood in uh, in this uh, in this faith. So the obligation or the connection is uh, is a shared connection of uh, of uh, faith, and we relate to in catastrophes and calamities a very thin uh, relationship uh, uh, with the rest of the Ummah. So these are. A couple of uh, uh, what I say extreme uh, interpretations or understanding of uh, this concept. How do we uh, bring this uh, all together? Yeah, I see both of those concepts as being part of a spectrum of uh, and dimensions rather of the way in which we relate, we relate to the Ummah. There are local dimensions and there are global dimensions. In fact, not only global, spatially in terms of space, 
but also global in terms of time. So let me explain what I mean. Anyone who says La ilaha illallah and believes in the Prophet or in a Prophet of Allah truly is part of this Ummah. So it's a timeless Ummah from the beginning of time. And that's why when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions in the Quran the beautiful verse that was recited earlier in the Hadith, Ummatukum Ummata Wahida wa Ana Rabbukum Fa'budun, the context of that ayah is communities of earlier prophets that are part of this ummah of tawheed of all of those who say la ilaha illallah and they do so by believing in the messenger whatever messenger they have um so it's generation after generation all of the prophets in other words prophet musa and isa and Nuh and ibrahim alayhim salam and muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam uh, are part of this ummah they are the leaders of this ummah they are the ones that we emulate as well as all of the Sahaba uh, But then there is a spatial or um, aspect which is all believers anyone who says la ilaha illallah Muhammadur Rasulullah anyone who says those two testimonies is part of the ummah and then there is the aspect where uh, you actually effectively in your emotions relate to people around you and that is uh, you know a face-to-face -face interaction and that's limited to your local community and our deen requires of us um, a very practical uh, approach that on the one hand we are connected to the entire ummah in time and space on the other hand we have immediate responsibility to those around us um, and our responsibility extends to the level of our capacity and so that in fact in the past the ulama would reflect that or fuqaha would would reflect this by saying that muslims of course are responsible for those around them other muslims around them and then because at that time action was mostly um, limited to what one could do with one's hand so you know once you could not defend people that were far away you couldn't send money too far because you didn't have information and means so basically you're responsible to the ummah around you or the neighboring communities if they did not have enough wealth or perhaps they were being attacked and uh, and they could not defend themselves then it became uh, if you will legally the responsibility of Muslims in a given vicinity to defend those Muslims who are unable to defend themselves today just as Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given us means to communicate globally um, to understand what's going on globally and to act globally um, it becomes important for us to both know what's happening in the ummah across the globe but and to act globally now um, the concept of Khilafa, which of course is uh, an important obligation, so much so that the ulama say that the Sahaba um, were so concerned about it that when Rasulullah passed away, they attended to uh, appointing a Khalifa, a successor to the Prophet before even burying him. So this is why the ulama of Islam agree that uh, this is a matter of ijma, a consensus that it is an obligation upon the ummah to the extent that they are capable to have a khalifa. And khalifa is not a, a kind of a medieval absolutism as it's sometimes thought of. It is rather um, to walk in the shoes of the Prophet insofar as he cared for the ummah. So it is to care for the ummah of Muhammad wasallam, and um, how Khilafah at any time looks like may differ depending on the ability of the institutions, the capacity, the techniques, and so on. But the key to Khilafah, if you will, the crux of this Khilafah is the Ummah. Meaning that if someone claims to be a Khalifa and they are uh, cruel to the Ummah or they, are, uh, they are separate the Ummah or they leave the Ummah undefended, then that claim is uh, illegitimate. Um, so uh, one final then final thing is the 
uh, is the affective aspect of the ummah, the emotional and sentimental aspect of the ummah is so important that it existed before there was Khilafah, right? It existed at the time of the Prophet ﷺ, not only in Medina when the first Islamic authority is established, but in Mecca, as soon as La ilaha illallah is said, as soon as the Prophet ﷺ says La ilaha illallah, Muhammad Rasulullah, the first person to believe in the Prophet being messenger of Allah becomes a part of the Ummah with the Prophet ﷺ, right? So the Ummah, in a sense, comes into existence as soon as La ilaha illallah Muhammad Rasulullah is uttered by more than one person. And, and that's why wherever we are, whether in the West or the East, in any community, if you have another person in your city who says La ilaha illallah Muhammad Rasulullah and that's all you have, then you two are, have a responsibilities uh, toward each other. Um, you, you have the responsibility of nasiha, good advice, the best intentions for each other to seek welfare of each other, to give them the protection that they need. And, and so um, Ummah is, as Rasulullah said in a beautiful hadith, and I will, I will, uh, I will end this, uh, uh, with this discourse with this, is in the mu'minina fi tawaddihim wa tarahumihim wa ta'atufihim kal jasadi aw kal jasadin wahid in ishtaka minhu udwan ta'da'a lahu sa'iru al jasadi bil sahari wal humma that the believers in their tarahumihim, their mutual compassion, وتوادهم, in their love, وتعاطفهم, in their sentimentality, in their, uh, in their affection for each other, like one body. If one part of that body suffers, the rest of the body responds to it. That's what being in Ummah means by, uh, with fever and by staying up at night to take care of that part of the body that is suffering. And so the Prophet ﷺ captures this spirit that we must, in whatever capacity we can, both emotionally, but also effectively in, in, in through our means, whether they are social or political means that are available to us, care for all of those who uphold this testimony. Jazakallah khair, Dr. Anjum. Um, and to kind of move on what you've just uh, started to talk about, which is that kind of that emotive and that spiritual aspect of Ummah, um, you are the founder and chief research officer of Ummatics Institute. And, and I wanted to go into this terminology a little bit. Um, and so, so I, I understand that, you know, you define it, or, or the institute rather, uh, defines that Ummatics is, uh, you know, to the Ummah what politics is to the nation state, but then there's this um, variation or the, the, the difference here is upholding the divine, mes divine message. And I wanted to ask you if you can kind of elaborate for us uh, this concept of ummatics uh, in relation to ummah. Okay, yeah, so ummatics is, um, we use this analogy of politics. You know, when you think about politics, uh, political philosophy, political science, political institutions. What are they about? They are about uh, managing the affairs of uh, people who live within a territory um, and make up a nation together. This concept of the nation, which is disconnected from religion, but is rather grounded in the secular notion of a territory um, and some perhaps national mythology is foreign to Islam. Um, in Islam, rather, what we have is that all of those who say La ilaha illallah Muhammad Rasulullah and those who are around them. So even if those, uh, there are of course non-Muslims who may be uh, within the realm of the Ummah and are cared for by the Ummah given certain rights um, as dhimmis, um, though they are part of the responsibility of uh, the ummah, but what this, what it means, what ummatics is to emphasize that the primary concern of the Muslim ummah is not the same as the concern of the nation state. The nation state, as a secular entity, um, if you will, a mortal god, as uh, as as Thomas Hobbes put it, meaning. It claims the highest authority. It claims sovereignty. It claims to give you the final, um, uh, the final answer to any question that, is pertain that pertains to the collective affairs of a given community. 
uh, if there is a dispute, if there is a, what we should do as a community, um, it is the state um, and those who author have authority of the state, they're the ones um, where all decisions must end. But not only that, not only do they make the decisions, but they have the authority to make those decisions on their, in their own right. Now, this is a crucial thing that we cannot accept as believers because we know that that decision, that authority to give us final say on what is right and what is wrong belongs to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And Muslim rulers are therefore bound by this rule of law uh, that is given by Allah. And um, umatics then has a different definition and different role. Umatics is um, the proper way to think about Islamic politics, which is to say the purpose of this community to exist is not the same as the purpose of a nation who, you know, it may exist to, for, for this, this nation's purpose may be to merely thrive as a secular entity in this world, whereas the Ummah exists to respond to the divine call, to be just and balanced, to, to, to spread the good that God has given them to the rest of humanity. That Allah has made us the best community, the, the, the most balanced community, for, so that we are witnesses, we bear witness unto humankind, just as the Prophet وسلم, uh, has borne witness to us. And this means this community has a moral responsibility. Its purpose is not merely to exist and thrive in this world, even though that's also important, but its purpose is to exist for the sake of others, for the sake of the rest of humankind, to share the message that God has given us, even when we are suffering at the hands of others, right? So there is a beautiful and powerful uh, uh, message here, just as the Prophet Sallallahu uh, in this very ayah in Surah Al-Baqarah uh, 143, uh, that just as the Prophet ﷺ bears witness, just as any prophet bears witness to their people, and 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 those people in in turn may reject the Prophet, right? And they may cause suffering. This ummah, may, in the process of giving da'wah, in the process of bringing Allah to the people may have to suffer at their hands, but rather than revenge and anger uh, and, reaction, uh, and reactionary uh, attitude that others might have, this ummah is one that forgives and brings people to Allah. This ummah has a responsibility both within itself to be just and, uh, and pious and righteous um, toward each other, but also toward the rest of humanity. So this ummah then has a responsibility um, which is above and beyond the responsibility of the nation state. So it's different in its boundaries, right? Its boundaries are not the boundaries of a particular nation state, but, but wherever the community is, the ummah exists. And secondly, in its goals, it's different. Its goals are given by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and not ones that uh, people of a particular territory or particular time may decide uh, for themselves. So I have a couple of follow-ups to this uh, uh, important distinction because sometimes it is easier to understand the concept by by understanding what is not and how is, how it relates to other uh, concepts or realities that we uh, uh, we, we live uh, through. Uh, the first is at the collective level. Does the concept of Ummah, as you explained it, uh, can it coexist with the uh, concept of a nation state or does it or is it a complete uh, alternative uh, system? So where is where is the overlap there? And if we take it down to the individual level, and that's my second follow up. So does the concept of Ummah or belonging to an Ummah uh, oppose the concept, the modern concept of citizenship that uh, relates to a nation state? Okay, very good. So when we think about the word nation state or citizenship, I'll take both of your questions together. We can either give a minimalist definition or a maximalist definition. By maximalist definition, I mean 
that you understand by the word nation state as a sovereign uh, territory, uh, right? A, a territory that and the people there uh, that claim to have sovereignty, no one else has the right to tell them, including God, um, what is right, what is wrong, what is the purpose of existence. None of that is possible, right? So if you accept this notion of the nation state, then it's almost by definition that it goes against the fundamentals of Islam. Um, to give an example that might perhaps make sense to people, think of a masjid. Um, there's a community in the masjid and there is some leadership. Some people, you know, there is an imam or perhaps more than one imams. And then there is a committee that takes care of the building and, and, and uh, activities and so on. Now this committee, this uh, governance of the masjid may be democratic or it may be uh, perhaps one senior sheikh who uh, has great wisdom and people rely on, uh, on, on this person's wisdom. Or maybe there is some other kind of, maybe there are some families that come together to make all the decisions and so on. But what is crucial about this place is that it is a masjid. Let us say that if someone claims the authority that, uh, and that, that may be the community itself. Let's say the community that attends the masjid comes together and say, we want to give ourselves the authority to decide whether this place is going to be a masjid or a church or a synagogue or a gay bar. It is our authority, right? It's our choice. We can turn it into whatever we want. And today, this month, we would like it to be a masjid. However, next, one, next month, we're going to vote again to see if maybe we want to turn it into a bar. Now, the, that's the kind of authority that the nation state wants to claim, right? It's that it has the decision, it has the power to turn this place into a gay bar. It's not just a masjid because God made it this is a place uh, of worship and we cannot change that. Of course, we could change the community and, and, and you know, or decide that we need to pray somewhere. That's not what we're talking about. Rather, what, what is the basis of the formation of this community? Is it that it is a masjid? It is a community that has been constituted by its response to God or by something else? When you say that a particular territory, whether it's like, let's say Pakistan or Egypt or Saudi Arabia, its authority is constituted by, its sovereignty comes from its territory by being a people that live in that territory who can decide whatever they want. That's the fundamental concept of the nation state. Whereas in Islam throughout history, by the very virtue of saying we're Muslim, we belong to a community, an ummah, that was created by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala with Adam alayhi salam, and through all the prophets, we belong to that ummah. And then there may be people who rule over us, though they cannot change our deen. They cannot say that this ummah now is the ummah, uh, a secular ummah, or this is an ummah that perhaps is a Marxist ummah. They never had that authority. Even the most oppressive rulers may be oppressed people, but they did not and could not question God's right to decide who we are. We are a continuation of the Prophet right? and his ummah. That's the difference between the modern nation state and uh, ummatic governance. right? And the, the name for that has been historically khilafa uh, or imama. Um, those are um, interchangeable words. So in that sense, my answer would be the nation state concept is contradictory to the fundamentals of Ummah. But now let's take a minimalist concept, a minimalist definition of what it means to be a state today. It just means that we are, um, you know, we are a people who, um, have decided that you know uh, we, we are part of the ummah 
but we will govern in Pakistan and Egypt and Saudi Arabia according to the norms uh, that we decide. Living within the Ummah, living within the um, uh, within the constraints of Islam. This is how often people have understood. But the problem with this understanding is that it is it is incoherent. Uh, it's incoherent because when you are part of uh, a, na a community of nations, you are expected, you have given the rights of, uh, uh, um, of, of a sovereign nation state. That's how you're treated. You don't have any other responsibilities in the system to other Muslims, uh, any different from any other entities. And so therefore you have accepted the structure of the nation state, even though in your mind you want to live as an ummah. So what happens then is that every time that you want to live as an ummah, you are going to be, you're going to come up against hard limits. Let's say you are in Pakistan and you want to talk about Palestine. Um, a secularist party that wants to turn this, um, this masjid, right, to go back to our example, into a gay bar, said, well, why do you have any, what do we have to do with Palestine or with the Afghan, with Afghanistan or with Turkey or Uyghur? Our purpose is to thrive. That's our only mandate here. In Pakistan, we care only about Pakistanis, right? Now, a secular Pakistani, an atheist Pakistani, a Muslim Pakistani are all equal on this ground. And let's say there is a, um, a battle, uh, a, a conflict with Afghanistan, then a Pakistani citizen has the legal responsibility by the very uh, definition of being, being a citizen of the nation state to go and fight and kill as commanded Afghani believers. So, Islam is not the basis of my relationship either to those Pakistanis or those Afghanis. You could replace that example to Egyptians and Sudanese or Moroccans and Algerians. That's what the nation state system is. So we, whether you like it or not, and often uh, many well-intentioned people would say, well, we can continue to live on in these nation states, but cultivate our uh, ummatic or Muslim uh, sensibilities, they're often um, running up against reality um, because um, they, they have accepted a structure that is fundamentally secular. And in that structure, they become um, strangers or perhaps even hypocrites. Because if you are a proper Egyptian and you care about Palestinians, Palestinians the same way as you would, then by the very standards you have accepted, you are either a hypocrite or uh, only a halfway Egyptian. It doesn't quite make sense. Now, one final thing I would say about this is that this criticism of the nation state is not, in fact, limited to Islam. The entire human kind has realized that this nation state gave us two world wars. Nation state patriotism was the foundation of the greatest massacres in, in human history ever undertaken. The first world war, just the first world war, 1914 through 1918, killed more people of course, there were Ottomans there, Europeans there throughout the world, uh, Indians uh, who were occupied by uh, or colonized by the British at the time. But the total number of people killed was greater than if you look in all history books since, his, since known written history, look at all the wars and people talk about, you know, how religions fought each other and there was a lot of religious violence. Add up all of those wars, people killed on all sides that number is smaller than the number of people killed in just the first world war we're not even talking about what happens in the holocaust and what happens in russia and china in the name of secular ideologies of uh, of marxism and socialism communism and whatnot 
or what happened in the Second World War uh, or Nazism. We're just talking about the First World War. So nation-state ideology has been um, the most murderous ideology in human history. And that's why after the Second World War, um, after 1945, um, there was an attempt throughout the world to change the model of the nation state to create United Nations. And in a sense, United Nations, it was a way to constrain some of the powers of the nation state. Uh, but of course, we know it always, uh, almost always acts hypocritically in the uh, fa in favor of those who are victors in the Second World War. Uh, but more importantly, um, starting in 1980s, European Union, uh, the very birthplace of the nation state was Europe. And Europe itself uh, reneged on the idea of the nation state by creating European Union, where um, authority often went to um, actors that were not that didn't belong to the nation that, were, that lived beyond national boundaries and then european uh european uh union um uh was in a, in a way a rolling back of the nation state right so the point I'm, I'm making is that the nation state is as an idea is recognized to be a problem even an evil, I might say. Now, some people say it's a necessary evil, but I don't know of many thoughtful people today who recognize, who don't recognize the limitations and the inherent uh, violence that lies in the concept of the nation state. So Dr. Overmere, what do we do? <laughs> I, you know, I, as Muslims that aspire to, you know, build an ummah and, and living in, as you've just, you know, explained to us that even nation state itself is a failing, uh, you know, uh, framework. Practically, what do we do? E each one of us, you know, individually on the ground, uh, in the communities, uh, what do we do? And exactly facing what you just said a few moments ago, um, when any of us choose to champion any sort of social justice issue or ethical issues, uh, you come up against these walls, right? So, yeah. so, so where do we go from here? Well, so the first step is that we have to reclaim our language. I've been um, studying, researching, and teaching in the Western Academy for over 20 years. And um, one of the reasons I founded the Omatics Institute as an academic institute, but not only an academic institute, you know, we were very much interested in hearing back from ordinary Muslims, not only in the academy. Um, but the, the reason for that is to be able to talk about the Ummah, right? Because um, colonialism of a couple of centuries and then um, and then European Western uh, particularly American imperialism United States uh, and more recently global war on terror which often slips into global war on Islam uh, has taken away Muslims voices Muslims feelings right that has to be resisted we have to be able to talk about the ummah and that's why uh, Umatics is a way to invite, in fact, uh, academics across the board, including non-Muslims, uh, non-Muslim activists, leaders, academics, uh, to say that we have to be able to talk about, we have to exist as Muslims. Um, and there are good reasons for all people, not just Muslims, but all people to recognize that what Western colonial enterprise has done to Muslims is has been wrong. It has, it's been a wrong of a century and a half to two centuries. That that wrong is part of a larger wrong of the modern secular systems um, that are exploitative and that have destroyed the very planet on which we live. That we are recognizing the wrong 
In fact, the wrong has come back to bite us uh, in the West, that in fact, the very community, the very countries that went out once to colonize uh, are, have now uh, sort of become fragmented, turn against each other, uh, where a very few rich uh, are ex exploiting the rest of the poor. And that model of a few 1% against the rest has been exported to the rest of the world. We are living in a world that's not sustainable economically or ecologically, that it is good reason for us to think of an alternative model of existence that we will uh, not give up our deen, our religion, our identity, our commitments to God, um, and our da'wah, including that da'wah that uh, even if the Muslim ummah elsewhere, everywhere in the world is suffering, Muslim ummah is bleeding, and enough is enough. We are, in fact, going to speak our own language. We are going to um, have, uh, you know, our, uh, our moral agency, our political social agency um, uh, thrive and flourish in the world. What we have to give in the world is uh, and contribute to the world is, um, is ultimately what the world needs that we want to, we can do that in, um, in ways that are peaceful if allowed. But what's happening to the Muslims in the world is our problem. What's happening to people around the world is our problem. What's happening to the environment is our problem. And um, our solution as Muslims as members of the Ummah is going to be, is going to have to reflect our values. Uh, Dr. Reimer, uh, I want to take this uh, again, as uh, Sister Mamuna did earlier, uh, down to the individual uh, level, uh, an average Muslim living in North America, and uh, probably is not thinking much about the maximal uh, uh, interpretation uh, uh, or explanation and the distinctions that you're making, but more on the minimalistic uh, side where basically it is clear for uh, for him or her uh, that uh, through a secular lens or framework that this is my obligations as a citizen, this is how I live my life in a halal way, inshallah, and uh, I am able to uh, function as a Muslim and do my rituals. I actually have more freedoms than that in other uh, Muslim majority nations. Uh, but and I also can relate to an Ummah and I see disasters happening somewhere. I can contribute some money. I can uh, advocate for a particular cause. And I feel that uh, or he or she feels that uh, it is manageable or doable to live this, to, to, to keep it at this minimalistic uh, level. So my question really is how important or how, uh, how uh, uh, essential it is to uh, live with this, uh, with the uh, interpretation of the concept of Ummah that you have outlined throughout this uh, segment. And also, uh, can I live without it? Can I live without affiliating without the Ummah entirely? Is it, is it part of our uh, mainstream understanding of Islam? Okay, very good. So to your first question of how can a typical American or Western uh, or, uh, citizen uh, live? Um, and, and my answer to that is the world is coming apart at the seams. People are living ecologically, we are told, by 97% scientists of the world that within 30 to 50 years, we're going to have good chunks of this uh, civilization un unraveled, that good parts of the world are going to be underwater. But we are living on. So if you want to close your eyes uh, and if, you know, you could close your eyes to Palestinians, you can close your eyes to what's happening to Uyghur uh, in, 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 um, un, uh, under China, you can close your eyes to Rohingya, you can close your eyes to Kashmiris. That's what everybody's doing about all the problems. 
But is that the right thing to do? Is that the moral thing to do? Is that the Islamic thing to do? That's the question I think we have to ask. And the answer is no. I think that we have to respond to these problems that are not only Muslim problems, although there are particularly peculiarly Muslim problems, and, and that is the, the mission that we have been given by Allah Subhanahu But then there are general problems, uh, which, which is that the world is screaming for help, that it's morally, uh, morally empty, vacuous uh, a civilization, a set of ideas that are driving the world, um, in which dog eat dog, it's the world in which people um, the poor are getting poorer and in which oppression uh, around the world is increasing, uh, in which those who contributed least to the creation of this, this modern materialistic civilizations are suffering the most, people who did the least to harm it. And the, and the problems are not limited to uh, a few political regimes, um, but rather something much deeper, much more fundamental. Human, the human, uh, human, human knowledge, human meaning of life um, is, is something that people are uh, dissatisfied with. So um, we should not compartmentalize these problems, right? Uh, from our fundamental commitments and truths in which we believe. And we believe that God has given answers to those questions. Uh, and again, I do, let me also say that I do not want to pay, paint a, an entirely apocalyptic picture because Muslims also, uh, particularly those in the West, have immense capacities and resources and freedoms, as you pointed out. Um, in the West in particular, uh, we ought to use those freedoms and those capacities to advocate for truth, advocate for those who are suffering, and to show the mirror to uh, the powers that are causing it often uh, out of ignorance or arrogance. So, in short, Muslims in the West have greater capacity and therefore greater responsibility to do something for the ummah. Um, and this does not go against our citizenship contract. Now, whether citizenship contract is something that is, is, uh, is valid in Islam or not, Right? In other words, Islam's own contract of citizenship may be different. But as citizens of non-Muslim countries, we are obliged to uphold our contract. That is a commandment in the Quran. And uh, Muslim jurists uh, agree on this, that we uphold our contract. Nevertheless, this is not to say that we will be silent about the oppression uh, of and uh, our people around the world, but also oppression of the people against themselves. When people are away from truth, they are themselves suffering. So for us, our citizenship contract rec requires that we challenge the great structural wrongs that are being committed in the world and that we speak out for the ummah, that even non-Muslim, if you look at non-Muslim journalists and scholars, they will tell you that this there are effectively uh, ethnic cleansing, or some even use the word genocide against Muslim populations uh, in, in many places. There's not a community that is suffering so deeply, so profoundly, and seems so helpless. So for us to not do something about that, right? For us to not feel that pain um, and not feel that urgency and not stay up at night, as the Prophet says in a hadith, to do something about it. Well, that's, uh, that would be deeply wrong at all levels, at purely secular level, that would be wrong. 
but certainly at an Islamic level. In other words, we have a theoretical disagreement with how to set up political communities. We believe that Islam has given us a way that is superior and by as being as being Muslim, that's our responsibility. But as we are living in non-Muslim countries, uh, we can be good citizens while at the same time upholding that truth and uh, presenting the model that Muslims ought to follow. Jazakallah khair, Dr. Ovimir. Um, as we round up, inshallah, I thank you for walking us through kind of this like, you know, overview of what, uh, how to think about uh, Ummah and then thinking about it, uh, you know, vis-a-vis the nation state and also getting us to think about how each of us as individuals need to act on this and, and feel that deep calling within us and that urgency and lose sleep over it because this is really uh, something uh, that we need to uh, think more deeply about. Jazakallah khair. I don't know, uh, Brother Khaled, if you want to ask anything. Oh, I have so many <laughs> questions, but uh, we don't have too much time. So uh, so uh, my uh, you touched upon a bit on the obligations uh, of uh, a Muslim as he listens to your comprehensive explanation of what does the Ummah term means and you brought all these ideas together uh, so partially I want to know what do you feel what do you think uh, uh, concisely as what's the individual in obligations towards the Ummah from one end but also to our uh, dear uh, uh, people who are eager to learn more about these concepts uh, about this, uh, uh, mashallah, articulate way of explaining the uh, meaning of the uh, of the ummah. You you've renewed uh, many of the concepts and the ideas that uh, were present in the uh, older literature, but also uh, gave an academic and a contemporary uh, uh, analysis of these uh, concepts as it relates to uh, what we live by. So, how where would people start to read? about this and engage and, and, and learn about these concepts. So the obligations and how can we learn more and as we leave it to our audience to continue, inshallah. In a couple for of obligations, I would say for each one of us, uh, the golden rule in Islam is that our responsibilities um, are commensurate with our capacities, our faculties, our abilities. So do whatever you can and also uh, increase those, those capacities, right? So if you are a young person thinking about uh, and you have the ability to read books and the ability to choose a major, the ability to learn uh, languages, then you have um, great responsibility to learn about the Ummah, to visit um, uh, the Ummah, if visit Muslim countries and understand not with this romantic sense of, you know, everything is right there often, but understand the history of how people got where we are uh, where and, and, and connect to Muslims, understand Muslims' pain, but also understand their, their struggles and their strengths that they are surviving. They have much to teach us. Um, dream. It's very important to be able to, under, to think of Allah's promise the Prophet ﷺ loved optimism, tafa'ul. And he would, when in Mecca, when he was suffering at the hands of the leaders there, he could show uh, his companions uh, it, the, the dreams of a, of a bright future. Um, and so the ability to dream is really important, even psychologically, if we were to think selfishly which is that if you're living without dreams, you're living in a nightmare. And this is one of the reasons why, especially after 9-11, Muslim youth in America, in, in North America in particular, but I, I suspect elsewhere, uh, were, uh, per, were, were seen as the least happy and the most prone to depression uh, because of course they were being attacked from everywhere. But they were unable to dream their only hope was that other people don't hate them as much uh, that's because we allowed of course a very powerful media machine a powerful culture machine to define our being for us and to define our horizons to limit our horizons almost strangle our dreams you have to be able to think that islam is indeed uh, god's gift to humanity 
Uh, you have to believe that and you have to dream that a better world is possible than the one that we in which we are living in which we the problems that the ummah is living um, are going to inshallah give way to better days uh, in which uh, and, and so that requires right allowing yourself something much simpler than getting degrees which you ought to do or, or learning arabic or learning other islamic languages which you ought to do or going taking subjects in in college for instance that increase your knowledge of the ummah which you ought to do or going uh, and registering your name at umatics institute uh, which you ought to do but also more uh, in a more basic sense i i call upon especially all young people young muslims to allow yourself to dream, to unlearn your helplessness, the sense that you are the problem. There are people who are paying billions of dollars to make you feel that way. There is Islamophobia industry. There are people who want, there are uh, elite in the Muslim world who want to keep their families in power and they'll do anything for that to make you feel that nothing else is possible, that this miserable state of affairs for the Muslims and for the world is all we can have. Allow yourself a different vision um, and, and connect to the Prophet ﷺ, his da'wah, his tafa'ud, his optimism. Um, and being connected to the ummah, being connected to almost 2 billion people in the world, it's a, it's a great blessing. You know, it explodes your horizons and your limits that you can you you can now think about the world, um, and you share with people who uh, with these two testimonies. You may disagree with them on many other things, but just that uh, thought, that idea that the ummah has um, is, is has survived, thrived, flourished, and struggled in all so many different places. That's an empowering thought. Allow yourself to think that way. Allow yourself to to be part of that ummah. And so I guess uh, first place to go to is uh, uh, Umatix uh, uh, resources online. And uh, there are a few, uh, several good articles to begin uh, approaching this concept, inshallah. And uh, I'm sure... Uh, We've hosted Dr. Anjam at uh, our MAC convention last year. Inshallah, we'll hope to see him again at the convention uh, this year. And uh, inshallah, we hope to connect with him in uh, so many different times. Jazakumullah uh, khairan, Dr. Awaymer. And inshallah, we uh, will stay in touch. And uh, we uh, hope to continue this conversation in many different ways. Uh, and uh, Ramadan Mubarak to you, inshallah. Mubarak. So as we end tonight, inshallah, um, maybe we can just give you a quick highlight of uh, what's happening uh, within the coming weeks, inshallah. So we will continue our, uh, and this will be customized region to region, half an hour before Maghrib, inshallah, we will have our uh, pre-iftar program every day. Uh, we will also be having uh, special Islam in Life uh, episodes. I don't know if you want to share a little bit, uh, Brother Khalid. Yeah, so inshallah we'll, uh, we'll have a different format for the uh, uh, Islam in Life and it's going to be Islam in Life in Ramadan where we are going to host uh, uh, scholars from the different regions of Canada, the East, the West and the, uh, and the different uh, provinces inshallah. Uh, so every week in Ramadan on Thursday at uh, 6 p.m. before iftar, inshallah, and before our daily program, we're going to uh, host uh, a, a, a different uh, a scholar from a different community, inshallah. And I hope we, you find this uh, interesting and you uh, uh, break your iftar or you uh, come to uh, share, inshallah, this with uh, the Muslim Ummah in uh, Canada, inshallah, from the different places. So jazakumullah khairan. Uh, for being with us and we look forward inshallah to connecting with all of you in different ways uh, throughout the month of Ramadan inshallah inshallah and stay uh, tuned with your local chapters uh, our community centers and our masajids are bustling with activities so please uh, stay in touch with your local chapters and inshallah we will uh, see you uh, back for our regular episodes and if I can invite uh, Dr. Anjum to do a closing dua for us We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to allow us to enter the month of Ramadan with our hearts Amen. pure and clear and prepared Amen. to receive the blessings of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. 
and any rancor removed from our hearts toward anyone um, and our hearts filled with the love of our Prophet and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and compassion for all those around us with hope that we will increase in piety and righteousness and nearness to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uh, may ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to forgive us our sins and increase the ranks um, of all of those our um, believers who have gone before us our teachers our parents okay. and protect our coming generations Life is an online production by the Muslim Association of Canada.